welcome to this edition of the Breathe Easy podcast brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. I'm your host today, Dr. David Ingram, and I'm very excited to welcome our two guests for a conversation about integrative approaches to sleep in children. Uh, so Dr. Karen France is Associate Professor of Child and Family Psychology at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, and Dr. Melody Brown is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Program Director of Integrative Medicine at Children's Minnesota, uh, as well as uh, on the Executive Committee for the Section of Integrative Medicine at the American Academy of Pediatrics. So thank you to both of you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, so today, I'd like to discuss integrative approaches to sleep problems in children, and this is a frequent topic of interest to uh, families bringing their kids into sleep clinic, uh, and a lot of times I'm not uh, positive about how to advise them about a lot of the approaches that they're asking about. So uh, Dr. France, you recently published an article in Sleep Medicine Reviews examining the empirical research regarding non-traditional approaches. Uh, to enhancing sleep in typical and clinical children. So I'm curious, uh, what was your motivation for performing this review? Uh, good question. Um, <clears throat> just a bit of context. I'm an academic. I've always been a uh, also a clinical psychologist. My work over the years has involved a lot of uh, behavioral interventions with families and children. Um, and particularly with my research focus, which is on um, sleep problems. So sleep problems, children who resist bed, take a long time to settle, co-sleep when the parents don't want them to, wake frequently, wake early, sleep at unusual times, um, or who do other things than sleep, for example, worry, engage in stereotypies, or use electronics. So behavioral treatments are very effective, but they're very technical. And they can be stressful for parents and children, especially with young children and children with disabilities. So my colleague, Laurie McClay, who's an applied behavior analyst and I, set out to do this review um, just as we began a study with children with autism or rare genetic neurodevelopmental disorders. So we were particularly interested in finding less restrictive interventions than some of the behavioral interventions. And of course, we'd heard the anecdotal information about techniques outside of traditional treatment, such as medication or behavior therapy. So we set out to find out what empirical evidence there was for these. So the research we were doing involves very rigorous experimental design, but it's over small numbers of participants, particularly if we're trying to group um, Angelman syndrome or something like that together, um, obviously, and also because it's very intense, we're working only with small children at a time. So we use what's conventionally called single case design. Um, these are not case studies at all. These are rigorous replicated experiments over successive number of participants. So our thinking at that time was it would be quite easy if we ranked interventions from mo from least to most restrictive. We could have added at the beginning as the first step um, low impact interventions like white noise and that kind of thing. So our starting point was to actually find promising interventions to see whether we could actually build those into the sequence of 
interventions as we rolled it out. So uh, you, let's talk about how you went about uh, per actually performing this review. Uh, so how did you classify different approaches as non-traditional versus traditional? Uh, that was one thing that I sometimes have trouble with. You know, is melatonin a, a traditional yeah. or non-traditional approach? Yeah. Uh, and then you also <laughs> had a, an interesting way of evaluating kind of the certainty of evidence uh, yeah. of the studies that you looked at. So if you could explain that. Yeah, well, those were two absolutely key parts and took a lot of thinking. I'm not sure we got it right, but at least we got a workable place in it. Melatonin's a really good example. We didn't include melatonin because in our um, jurisdiction, it's a prescription medication. It's not in other areas of the world. So, um, But what we're talking about there was that we were moving outside of mainstream practice for what we were looking for. So well-researched interventions like behaviour therapy, like um, prescription medications, we didn't include. So it was a bit of a, a negative approach to that. Um, what we, we tried to stay away from the term, obviously we used it as a search term, but um, complementary and alternative medicine. The reason for that was that um, the word medicine um, doesn't, what we were trying to indicate was that families are going outside of the health professions to look for these. Um, that approaches such as exercise are hard to categorise as medicine. And um, we weren't just looking at effects on medically diagnosable sleep problems, but on sleep per se, as, just as a starting point. So it really boiled down to non-behavioural, non-prescription pharmaceuticals and approaches which parents may seek out for themselves and which were attracting some attention, especially on the internet. So we had a list to start with. Um, we were looking, we added to that looking at various internet sites where parents were discussing sleep. Um, then we searched widely on academic sites using terms such as complementary and alternative or non-traditional with sleep and children. That brought us in a list of 11 broad approaches so these were um, acupuncture and acupressure, aromatherapy, bright light, diet of various kinds, dietary supplements of various kinds, exercise, massage, music, osteopathic manipulation, weighted blankets and white noise. So once we had that list, we then set out, and the, and the individual categories, say, of diet, we then set out um, to search each of um, these terms in their own right within the various um, search engines. Um, yeah, so, and then when it comes to rigour, which is another um, process for us, which took a lot of thinking about, we, we wanted to cast the net as wide as we could. Obviously, we started first of all to see who else has done reviews in the area. Um, and that led us to abandon the search for studies meeting the, the kind of accepted rigorous criteria such as RCTs um, because in studies that used those criteria, children were rendered invisible. They just didn't make the cut. And this was because most of the research on these techniques in, these ch in children were being done in really small-scale settings such as residential um, places for children with disability um, clinics that kind of thing. Um, rigor, however, was important to us 
And so we set out, once we kind of had that information, we set out to catalogue the research and its quality with a view to finding promising approaches, but also um, with a view to making visible the drawbacks of the area of research and encouraging researchers to do better because we knew that there were much more rigorous ways of doing research in small-scale settings. Um, <clears throat> then we're, sorry, so I was just going to finish the question, if that's okay, Dave. Um, Absolutely, yep. Yeah, because you'd asked about the criteria that we ended up using for assessing the quality, which was Malloy et al. 2010. We had used that previously. Um, <clears throat> so... There were exclusion criteria. They had to be empirical. They had to be um, in peer-reviewed journals. They had to have some aspect of sleep as a dependent variable. But Malloy then gave criteria for classifying studies with regard to how reliable the outcomes might be. So um, they, the, the lowest ranking is suggestive, um, which includes things like uncontrolled trials preponderant where the outcomes were probably likely due to the intervention but there were still quite a few question marks over it and then conclusive studies which of course included the um, traditional well-regarded studies in, in, in our fields um, and that was based on things like blinding, inter-observer agreements, operational definition of the dependent variable, whether it's repl replicable um, and also, of course, the kinds of controls that were built in to the study. And then the other ranking that Malloy has is um, whether they were positive, mixed, neutral or negative in the outcome. I, I was really struck by how much uh, I was able to get out of this uh, manuscript that you wrote uh, with this way of looking at the evidence uh, rather than just saying at the end, oh, the evidence is, you know, we need more further study because we don't have uh, a large number of randomized controlled trials. We're able to grade the evidence uh, in a more practical manner. And uh, it really kind of boiled it down to some uh, more clinically useful uh, conclusions at the end. So, uh, so for our listeners, what were the main findings of your study? What did what did the literature yield? What what seemed to be uh, promising in terms of uh, some integrative approaches for sleep problems in kids, and what what didn't seem to be as as promising? Yeah, no, that's the um, that's the nitty gritty of it, isn't it? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but before I answer that, there are some caveats. Firstly, I guess the listeners is going to be two kinds of listeners here. One is going to be interested from a clinical point of view in terms of what might work. And the other, um, I'm hoping, I may be interested in taking some of those things and getting some better research on them. So for the latter group, I'd urge them to study the supplementary tables in the, in the review where we've deconstructed the ratings and laid bare the um, problems in the um, in the research in the area. I guess you know even people wanting to apply these techniques would um, be worth looking at those too, because I, I don't think there are any kind of categorical findings that that are utterly reliable. We need to remember um, that the poorer the rigor in these studies, the higher the chance of a positive finding. So working that reasoning backwards carefully but a positive finding is more likely to have come from 
a um, a study which had quite poor rigour. Um, and um, we looked at any effects on sleep, so some authors may not have intended a clinical application of the research. There also may be other explanations for effects, so taking our stances um, as a behavioural psychologist, if you're using white noise and parents are being instructed to use it at bedtime and at seven o'clock each night and to start the recordings then and that kind of thing, then there are going to be other active ingredients in the intervention, such as those associated with sleep hygiene, which we know has um, an effect on, on sleep in and of itself. The other thing is there's nothing in our study or in a lot of the, um, of the actual studies about safety. So some of these things with diet, supplements, physical well-being of children, you know, obviously anyone setting out to use them would need to be very careful. So that all having been said, um, the things that seemed to be promising in infants was um, aromatherapy, although again, that was usually paired with massage or a routine bath. Um, a trial elimination of cow's milk in infants um, into, because a, a number of sleep-disturbed infants do seem to have allergies to cow's milk. Um, food additives, which include tryptophan, um, osteopathic manipulation, avoiding caffeine. Now, that might sound um, a bit strange to Western um, groups, but this was a Guatemalan study where children are uh, routinely fed milky coffee um, and white noise. Um, so that's infants. So clinical population of children generally, um, ketogenic diets um, for children with obesity or epilepsy, remembering that sleep was not necessarily the primary focus of these studies, um, an elimination diet in children with ADHD, um, Omega-3 and Omega-6 from children with various disabilities and valerian for children with developmental disabilities. Typical children, calming music seemed to help at sleep onset. So going on in terms of the ones where there were mixed effects or no effects, um, massage in infants, um, shockingly to me, bright light therapy. Um, which is actually quite mainstream in its application, but very poorly researched. Um, acupressure, acupuncture, other diets, dietary other dietary supplements, exercise, waste blankets. There seems to be, at this point in time, no evidence for those kinds of things. Yeah, I agree. That was uh, when I read that, I was a little bit surprised because those are things that we're talking about usually fairly frequently uh, in clinic. Yeah. Um, of the modalities that you looked at, were there any that you think deserve special attention for those people who are looking to do more investigations or, or research studies that you think could be promising, but the evidence yeah. is not there yet? Well, we did, um, in terms of our original um, purpose, which was to see if there was some techniques that might help with what we were doing in our study, we do use white noise sometimes um, as a setting event to sleep, to mask other noises and to interrupt the auditory feedback loop for vocal stereotypies. Um, so it's early days with our looking at that. Talking about white noise though, I think you know someone needs to research it without the, the behavioural structure that goes in with using it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, supplements, the omega-3 and 6, tryptophan and valerian. There was one we study on valerian, which was a, a very carefully controlled experimental study, but only with five participants, which seemed um, promising. Uh, bright light therapy, just someone needs to get out there and do the proper research. Um, and, and other interventions with associative effects, such as aromatherapy, um, if, they, if they can be deconstructed and properly researched. And again, the, you know, the answer is not big-scale RCTs. You're not going to get the funding for it. Um, but there's still so much good clinical research that could be done in these areas using rigorous um, experimental designs. Um, and there's writing out there, and if anyone wants to flick an email and ask for some a starting point in reading around these designs, then we're happy to help. Excellent. Um, Dr. Brown, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now. So uh, I'd love to hear your experience with integrative approaches to sleep in kids, but I'd also first like to hear kind of some background uh, for our listeners about pediatric integrative medicine in general. Uh, which is something you are really a leader in. Uh, so what can you tell us about kind of how commonly families are utilizing integrative approaches to health problems uh, for their kids uh, in in this country or across the world? Yeah, you know, I um, am really so excited. I was so excited to read this article, and I'm so excited to hear all of the discussions that we're having about research When people think of integrative medicine, I think they often think of something where maybe there's not a lot of evidence out there. But what we really know is not only are there a number of published studies that are now starting to come out, the number of high-quality studies are increasing. But back to your question about integrative medicine in general, I think that at one time we really focused on health as the absence of disease. And it's really uh, been clear now through some of the information that's been put out by the Institute of Medicine and also the World Health Organization that one of the things uh, that we should think about when we think about whole health in general is not just the absence of disease, but general wellness and, and how healthy are you. And that's a lot of what integrative medicine focuses on. So it's not looking just at the absence of disease. It's looking at all um, possible domains that can be used in order to pr- improve someone's health. To break that down, when we think about what sorts of domains and things are we talking about, we're talking about things like nutrition and exercise, and of course, sleep is a very important piece of that, and really looking at the evidence basis of what things can we bring together to ensure that the children that we're caring for can really be on a healthy path for the rest of their lives. Um, when we think about how many people are using integrative medicine or are using complementary um, uh, things in their, their lives, we know that over 9 million children are actually using complementary and integrative health approaches. Um, so approximately 10% or 1 in 10 children in a study in 2012 uh, were using these sorts of approaches. And then when we start talking about children who have medical complexity or chronic illness or a lot more going on, that can increase to over 50%. Now, this data is from probably about five years ago or so. And if you just think of media and you just think of what uh, information is out there, we understand that the more we learn, the more people are very interested in using uh, these additional complementary practices in order to improve their health. 
We know that when parents are using uh, integrative medicine and complementary practices, that they are more likely to use those for their children as well. So this is a really exciting field. Um, the evidence base is growing, and we're really learning so much more about how we can put people on a healthy path in the beginning of their lives so that they can continue. If, you, if we think about um, healthcare dollars and how they're spent, we know that lots of dollars are spent on chronic disease, and some of these diseases are things that are actually avoidable or uh, could be modified by lifestyle choices. And that's one of the things that we are looking at with integrative medicine. And it's it's interesting. Uh, this comes up a lot in clinic, and and some families uh, are are really uh, interested in these approaches and uh, not really interested in other approaches. And other families are kind of the opposite. So talking about this can be sometimes really tricky, uh, uh, depending on where the family's coming from, uh, kind of mentally. Uh, so what are some tips uh, uh, when you're talking to families about uh, integrative or, or complementary or whatever terminology you want to use uh, approaches? Yeah. Uh, what tips do you have for that? And it can be tricky. And one of the things we also know is we know that there are lots of families that are using these, but they're not quite comfortable talking to their physician about it. So we know that disclosure rates can sometimes be very low, and that's another one of the reasons that we think it's really important that people are comfortable having these conversations and these dialogues with the families of the children that they're taking care of. Um, one, you know, so there are a couple things. One is making sure that you're ask, actually asking the question. And so by asking the question of, you know, we always ask what medications are you taking, and people don't think to talk about the supplements and other things that they're taking. Um, and so specifically asking the question about, you know, are there other supplements that you're taking? If someone is coming in with a sleep problem or with another issue, asking, well, what sorts of things have you done that you have been told or prescribed by your physician? And what other sorts of things have you done? What things have you found helpful and what things have you not found helpful? And one of the um, things that really came to the, that came to the surface for me as I was listening to Dr. France talk about these different things that we uh, really would love to have some more research on is a framework that I often talk um, with colleagues and families about. And that's the idea when we're thinking about integrative therapies. And it's really the same framework that we have when we're thinking about any therapies, and that is safety versus efficacy. So fortunately, there are a lot of things within the realm of integrative medicine that are absolutely safe. And we may not yet have all of the data and that we uh, would like to have on the efficacy. And so when talking to families and really thinking about that, it's thinking, you know, is the therapy effective? And if you have a therapy that you know is absolutely effective and you know it's absolutely safe, well, then that's easy. That's something that you absolutely recommend. But what happens when you have a therapy that is absolutely safe, but we're not sure about the effectiveness of it? And one of the um, ideas that I would like for us all to sort of think about and ponder is uh, in partnering with the family to maybe help them understand what things they're interested in doing are safe and understand where the effectiveness is, we can empower them to make some choices and to give them some tools that they can actually use to help their children, to help their children with their sleep, to help their children with their health that are 
inexpensive, they can learn to do on their own, and really empower them to take some control over their health care. So a lot of times when I'm talking to families about integrative medicine and when I'm talking about complementary practices, I'm really talking about it from that framework. And there are times also when families may come to us with things that we know are actually not safe. And in that case, it's important for us to be able to help guide them and explain to them why it's not safe and also for us to know where to look to figure out if things are safe and if things are not safe. And that brings me to my next question. That's a great uh, point. What are some reputable um, sources of information regarding non-traditional approaches that you would recommend for providers listening who uh, are considering recommending uh, uh, some of these non-traditional approaches for their patients? Yeah, well, there are a number of um, universities and institutions that have that have information on integrative medicine and uh, complementary practices and techniques and even um, natural products and uh, supplements and nutrition. And, and we know that that is by far probably the largest um, sort of body of techniques and things that are, people are using have to do with um, vitamins and supplements and things like that. And so... Some of the universities have information on their websites. There are other ways to get some great information as well. There is something called the Natural Medicines Database that I use a lot. And within that database, you can actually look at, up different vitamins, supplements, herbal preparations, and you can see what the safety is of them. You can see what the proper dosing is. You can actually see what evidence has been linked to their use, as well as what some of the... Um, things you might need to worry about for people who are, uh, you know, interactions for people who are also taking other medications. The American Academy of Pediatrics also has a policy statement on integrative medicine that was just revised a few years ago, and that's something that is open access and free for anyone to see online. So the American Academy of Pediatrics section of integrative medicine has a policy statement, and that's a wonderful place to get some additional information. Um, there's also... Uh, a website, the Pediatric Complementary um, uh, Medical Research and Education Network. It is a site out of out of Canada, and that's a great place to get some additional information as well. I'm glad you brought up that statement from the AAP. I, I read that. That was very well written, and it touched on a lot. There's a lot in there. Um, and they they also tackle a few uh, kind of tricky issues, I think, uh, in integrative medicine. A couple of things they talked about were licensing issues or as well as insurance coverage. Uh, what can you tell us about that? How, how should we be cognizant of those issues uh, as we're uh, talking with our patients about these approaches? For, uh, for someone who's taking care of a patient in the general population, what I would say is that it's a good idea to be familiar with the, um, the people in your area who are providing care that's not, your, um, that's not your allopathic or osteopathic medicine. So, for example, to understand who the other people in your community are who are reputable, who are licensed, and who are comfortable dealing with children, um, because people will come and ask you, um, you know, can you recommend an acupuncturist or whatever their interests are? Many of these things are licensed by the state, and that can be a starting point. 
in looking and seeing uh, who's reputable, but I do think that it is really important to just have a little cadre of people that you know are reputable and that you can um, refer patients to when they express interest in those things. Excellent. Um, and bringing it back to sleep, uh, do you of the approaches that we talked about or, or other approaches that we didn't talk about, what has been your clinical experience? Uh, uh, well, I think I thought the caffeine question was really funny. And the reason I say that is because we would think <laughs> that our children are not drinking a lot of caffeine. But indeed, I've actually found that with uh, some of these, like some schools actually have these coffee bars, and I won't name, you know, specific uh, places, but some of these schools actually have these coffee things that the teens can go and, you know, get their cup of java. And a lot of times there are energy drinks or other beverages that kids are actually drinking that they don't think has caffeine just because it's not like the color of coffee. And so some of what we do in integrative medicine when we first are talking to families is we really unpack what their daily lives and their day-to-day practices are. And I'm always surprised to find how many people are not able to sleep at night, and it turns out that their afternoon pick-me-up is, you know, as much as a few shots of espresso. So sometimes it really is uh, looking into what sorts of things may be interfering with the sleep that you're having that we can easily modify. Um, Other approaches that I have found to be really helpful clinically is looking at some lifestyle changes, particularly as it surrounds bedtime and having a nighttime routine. And I know this is some of some of the things that were touched in this article. I know there was a, uh, you talked a little bit about lavender and essential oils, and um, having someone have a, a bedtime routine where their body knows that it's really time to start winding down for the night and winding down for sleep. You know, you're turning off those games, turning off those electronic devices, actually plugging in the phone in a charger downstairs instead of having it, you know, in the bedroom where it can be a temptation throughout the night. Those are some of those initial steps which sound very simple but can be really challenging where you're trying to figure out how to do this as a parent. But those are some of those initial things that we really work on with families. And when they're able to do it, we have some really good success. That's an excellent point. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's sometimes easy to to recommend those things, and it's really hard to implement them at home. Yeah. Uh, so I have before, seen it. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we wrap up, is there anything else either of you would like to add uh, on this topic for our listeners? Or we, we've covered it all. Excellent. Uh, so, <laughs> Dr. Francis and Dr. Brown, uh, thank you both again for joining us today. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with us. And I would encourage our listeners to read the recently uh, published article that we were talking about today. It's really excellent, and there's a there's a lot in there. It's uh, there was you can tell there's a tremendous amount of work that went into that. Uh, and again, thanks for our listeners for tuning in to this edition of the Breathe. Easy podcast. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you.